appreciate you very much, Brother Tim's message this morning to us. Aren't you very happy that uh, imperfect people have been made perfect by the only one who could, the only one who ever lived the perfect life, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ, or one offering he hath perfected. You've been perfected by Jesus. Uh, that's the only way you could be. And Jesus did it for all those that the Father gave to him. This morning I'd like to begin with a, a thought found in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Joshua 2, verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out a Shittim, two men as spies secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into an harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. Now, Canaan was a very fortified city. It was a, a city that was the first one that Israel was going to go in and take. And if they could take Jericho, then surely they'd be able to take all the other cities of the land. So prior to this, Joshua sends out two spies. You might think, well, that didn't work out too well earlier when they sent spies in the land, did it? We go back to Numbers chapter 13, and you find where Moses sent 12 spies into the land of Canaan. And those 12 spies came back, and they all 12 came back and gave a report about how good the land was, how fruitful the land was. Um, none of them disagreed about that. Uh, they mentioned about the great wall cities, Jericho being one of them. They mentioned the giants who were in the land. Um, Joshua and Caleb, two of the 12 spies, did not disagree with that. But 10 of those 12 spies said, we be not able to take the land. And Joshua and Caleb protested vigorously and said, we be well able to take the land. But the people listened to the 10 rather than the two. And therefore, they rebelled against God, and God sent his judgment. They was in the land for 40 days, and God's judgment was he was going to put them into a wilderness journey, which would last 40 years. He gave them one year for every day they spied out the land. That didn't work out too good, did it? Now, we notice one of those 12 spies was Joshua. But if you go back and study the lesson of the 12 spies, it wasn't wrong to send the 12 spies out. It was not a lack of faith in the Lord. It was just a, the normal thing to do when you get ready to take a land. God expects us to use our minds and our brains and our gifts and our talents to do the very best we can uh, and then depend upon him. Now, when I go to bed at night, I make sure all our doors are locked. Windows are locked, doors are locked, alarm is set. Somebody said, well, that doesn't show much faith in the Lord, does it? Now, that's got nothing to do with it. The Lord expects me to lock my doors. He expects me to lock my windows. He expects me to set the alarm because that's some things that he's given me the intelligence to do. And then I'm to put my trust in him that he will bless me and keep me from people still coming into the house. So those 12 spies went out. It wasn't God's fault that 10 of them come back with hearts of unbelief. It had an influence upon the other people. Now, Joshua is going to send two spies this time. Remember, Joshua was one of those 12 spies, and Joshua came back along with Caleb and said, we'd be well able. So he sends two spies into the land of Canaan, in particular concerning Jericho. Now, Jericho, again, was a great wall city, well fortified. Archaeologists back in the 1930s were able to dig up and discover the ruins and remains of the city of Jericho. And it was determined that Jericho had two walls around it. 
the outer wall was six foot thick, the inner wall was 12 foot thick, and these two walls were about 15 feet apart. Pretty amazing. Uh, just un unlikely that anybody could possibly get into this city. But somehow or another, these two spies are going to make it into the city. And they're going to go to a particular place, to a house that belonged to Rahab, the harlot. Now, everybody in that city was known of God. There was not one person in that city that God didn't know everything about. But there's one particular person in this city that God knows in a very special way, and that is Rahab. Those two men just didn't accidentally wind up at Rahab's house. We believe in providence. This wasn't by accident. It wasn't by chance. We believe in the providence of God. Now, God made a promise that you'll find recorded in the book of Deuteronomy, where it says, I will go before you. He said, I'll begin to put the dread of you into the hearts of of the inhabitants of the land. And they shall fear and be in great anguish because of you. Now notice what the Lord says. He said, I will go before you. The Lord has already gone before Joshua and the Israelites at this point. He's preparing the way for them to occupy the land. This is the land he promised to give them. It's known as the promised land, the land of Canaan. And so when those spies went in there, it was not... By accident, they wound up in the house of Rahab. The Lord knows all things. Uh, I enjoy reading over here a number of places in the New Testament concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, such as Matthew chapter 17, when the Lord told Peter to go down to the lake, to the sea, the Sea of Galilee, and cast a hook into the sea. He says, the first fish you catch will have a coin in its mouth. There was a lot of fish in the Sea of Galilee, how did the Lord know there was a fish that had a corn in its mouth to begin with? And how did he know it was going to be right where Peter was going to cast his hook when he got down there? The Lord did because he's the Lord. And he's omniscient. I find when the disciples came to the Lord concerning the Passover. I read in Luke chapter 22 where the Lord tells them to go into the city. And there they find a man bearing a pitcher of water. And then to follow that man to a certain place, to a certain house. And they did. He said, you'll find a, uh, you'll follow him to the house. You'll find a large upper room, and it's already prepared. It's already made ready. And you tell him that I'm going to have the Passover supper there with you. When they got into the city, they found the man the Lord was talking about. And men didn't usually walk around, uh, as this man's described here, carrying a pitcher of water upon his head. The Lord knew about this man. and knew where he'd be, and knew where he'd be at a certain time. That's why you read in Isaiah chapter 46 where it says, He declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times the things which are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, I'll do all my pleasure. The Lord fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9 when he sends disciples into the city to a certain place where they'd find a colt tied. And they were to go there and they were to loose that colt and to bring him back. If anybody said anything to them, they'd have said, The Lord hath need of him. How'd the Lord know where that colt was going to be? How did the Lord know exactly where to send those disciples? Because he's the Lord. That's why. And that's the kind of God that we believe in. We believe in a God that's omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. The Lord knew all about Rahab. Now, Rahab is described here as being the harlot Rahab. The Lord would never have sent his two spies. You know, Joshua never would have sent his two spies under the direction of the providence of God into a city, into the house of a harlot, if it's still a house that practiced 
that particular profession. I believe the Bible gives abundant evidence that Rahab at this particular time had long abandoned her practice of being a harlot. We'll, we'll look more about that in just a few minutes. But yet she had the label, and she would carry that label. Over in the New Testament, we find Rahab is mentioned three times, and I think it's very significant. Notice the three times and how it's mentioned about her. We come over here to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. If you're familiar with Hebrews, you're certainly familiar with Hebrews chapter 11. This is a chapter of the heroes of the faith, you might say. As Paul records the lives of about 15 or 16 individuals that lived in the Old Testament day and showed how they did great exploits by faith, by faith and through faith. You have somebody over there mentioned by the name of Rahab the harlot. It said, by faith, Rahab, when she received the spies or the messengers, she received them with peace. And I want you to notice those last two little words with that, with peace. We'll say more about that, be the Lord's will. In that same chapter, you're going to find the, other, the other, only other woman mentioned in that chapter among all those that I've just uh, spoke about. Her name is Sarah. By faith, Sarah received strength to conceive seed and be delivered of child when she was by nature past the age of childbearing. Now, what in the world does Sarah and Rahab have in common? Sarah was the wife of Abraham. Abraham's the father of the nation of Israel. In all accounts, Sarah was a very godly woman. In 1 Peter chapter 3, you're going to find where the apostle Peter speaks about holy women of old that were God-fearing and godly women. And he's instructing the women in the New Testament day that they'd be far more concerned with being clothed with an ornament of a quiet and meek spirit inwardly than they were with the broiling of hair and the wearing of gold and trinkets and ornaments. That's the outward apparel. And he said, for the holy women of old that feared God, that's the way they did. They were concerned with that meek and quiet spirit, even as Sarah did when she called Abraham Lord. Sarah was a very God-fearing woman, a godly woman, whom God chose to use her body to bring forth a son named Isaac when she was 90 years of age. What in the world does she have in common with Rahab? Because Rahab also did something by faith. Sarah did something by faith, and Rahab did something by faith. They did two entirely different things, but both of these women did something by faith, and the Apostle Paul, with divine inspiration, has them both in Hebrews chapter 11. Now, if he was a daughter of Sarah, and uh, as a daughter of Sarah, you heard somebody compare Sarah and Rahab, you might say, don't compare my mother with Rahab. My mother was a God-fearing woman. My mother... Uh, was the wife of Abraham. My mother uh, was a godly woman, a holy woman. Don't compare her to Rahab. Because you see, Rahab had not used her body that way. In her earlier days, Rahab had used her body in a very ungodly way. That's why she carries the label uh, of, of a harlot. But they had something in common. They both had faith. And the faith that both of them had had been given to them by God's sovereign grace. One had done nothing that the other one had, neither one had done anything to deserve this faith that God had given unto them, and then they exercised that faith. It took the same blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to cleanse one as it did the other. 
It took the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to cleanse Sarah from her sins, and she was a sinner by nature. And it took the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to cleanse Rahab the harlot as well. Both these women did something important enough that God had Paul write about it by inspiration in Hebrews chapter 11. And then we come to the second chapter of James. In the last part of James chapter 2, James is talking about the importance, writing to us the importance of our works to go along with our faith. Three times he says that faith without works is dead. He says, somebody might say, I have works and I have faith. He says, you show me your faith uh, without your works, I show my faith by my works. And he's going to give two illustrations of what he's talking about. And one of them is Abraham, and one of them is Rahab the harlot. He connects Abraham along with Rahab in James chapter 2 as sterling examples of what he's talking about being justified by works. Now, Abraham, the specific instance is given, and that's when he offered his son Isaac on top of Mount Moriah. Remember that in Genesis chapter 22, when God told him to take his son, his only son, to the top of the mountain and offer him there upon a certain mountain that I will show thee. And Abraham, by faith, obeyed the Lord and did that. And James brings that to our attention as being an example of being justified by works. And then he speaks about Rahab. Was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? When she hid the messengers that came, the spies that came, and she hid them, took care of them, was she not justified by works? Yes, she was. When you look at the subject of justification, I'll just take a moment on this. There's three distinct phases of justification. When you talk about being justified by works, that's not talking about being justified before God. In the book of Galatians, you will find repeatedly in the book of Galatians, where the apostle Paul said, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. No flesh can be justified by the works of the law. The works of the law, or the law was good, and God expected his children, the nation of Israel, to keep those works of the law, but by the works of the law, no flesh was justified in the sight of God, because man cannot perfect himself, as Brother Tim has spoken to us here this morning. You can't perfect yourself, and you can't perfect anybody else, and nobody else can perfect you except this man. Not some man, not any man, but this man. One man in particular, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, how are we just before God? Romans 5, 9 tells us, therefore being justified by blood. It took the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to justify every member of God's family. No one is justified by any other means or any other way than anyone else. We're all justified before God by the shed blood of the Savior. That's justification by blood. That's the legal aspects of justification. But just above that in verse 1, he says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And to show what that meant, if you read above that, it's going to talk about Abraham and Sarah again. Now that Abraham says, uh, you know, he was not being, being, not being weak in faith, but being strong in faith, Consider not his own body now being dead, nor the deadness of Sarah's womb. God made a promise to Abraham and Sarah they were going to have a child, and Sarah will be 90 and Abraham 100 when that takes place. But they believe that. Justification by faith means that's the peace you have in your mind and in your heart and soul 
when you do the will of God. Whenever you are obedient to the will of God, to the word of God, and you walk in the pathway of obedience and discipleship, it'll bring a peace to you that you won't have otherwise. You will not have peace in disobedience. You will not have peace in rebellion. That's justification by faith. That's the court of your own conscience. Justified by blood is the court of heaven. And being justified by works is the court of public opinion. And that's what James is talking about in James chapter 2, the court of public opinion. He concludes that, that message there about faith and works like this. He says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. And I have said many times, when people tell me they're not going to be at church for their sin, their spirit, I'd rather not know that because that means a funeral's taking place. If you send your spirit away from your body, you do something nobody else can do. Because that spirit leaves the body, you're dead. And I never have liked preaching to spirits. Never have. I like to see people that I'm preaching to. I can't see a spirit. I like to see people I'm preaching to, at least most of them. You know, as long as their eyes aren't warning out the window and they got it on the, on the cell phone or their tablet or their eyes are closed. And I don't care what people tell me. When eyes are closed, I'm just going to take, I'm going to go out on a limb right here and just assume you're sleeping. So I, but most people don't do those things. But every once in a while, I've got to go around and fulfill my promise that I've made in times past of having one of you, one at a time, one son at a time, come up here and sit with me and, and look out there and you can see what I see when I'm trying to preach. <laughs> anyway, you'll pray harder for me when you do that. I mean, I've had people say, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you preach with disturbance going on. I don't know how you preach with this, that, and the other going on. Well, you, that's because only God can help a man preach to do circumstances like that. Now, I'm talking about other congregations, of course. Uh, I'm not talking about this one. I'm just talking about others I've had experience in over my 50 years of trying to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Lord puts Rahab with Abraham, one of the great, greatest men in history, he puts Rahab with his wife, Sarah. And then if you look in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, you're going to find her being one of four women mentioned in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. She was married to a man by the name of Salmon. And Rahab is the great-great-grandmother of David. How in the world is she getting the genealogy over here of the Lord Jesus Christ? You find four women, which is very unusual to find a woman in a Jewish genealogy to begin with but you find four in the genealogy of Christ. You'll find Rahab, you'll find Ruth, you'll find Tamar, and you'll find Bathsheba. And you know the life about Bathsheba, how she had an adulterous act with David, brought forth Solomon. Well, it's later on Solomon, not the first time. And then you're going to find Tamar, and you can read about her in Genesis chapter 38, who through deception, she entered into an adulterous act with her father-in-law and brought forth twins. And then, of course, Ruth, uh, she was a Moabite. She was a Gentile Moabite living in the land of Moab. And then, of course, we have Rahab here, the harlot. Those two spies enter into the city of Jericho. I don't know how they got in there, but they got in there. Which reminds me of this principle that's found in the book of Revelation. The Lord opens, no man can shut. The Lord shuts and no man can open. Some way, somehow, another, God got the gates of Jericho open where his two spies enter in there. And they wind up in the household of Rahab the harlot. Three times 
going to refer to her in that manner and in that way. Now, somebody saw them, though, as we read on here, and they went to the king. Now, uh, if you go to the 12th chapter of Joshua, you'll find where there's 31 kings listed. And all these kings were in the land of Canaan. There were 31 cities, and each city had its own king. It's called a a city-state. And each city had its own king. The city of Jericho, I've already mentioned how strong it was, how fortified it was. It sat on about eight or nine acres. And there were many inhabitants inside that city, and that city had a king. You'll find all the cities in Canaan, 31 of them listed over there in the 12th chapter of this book of Joshua. So somebody sees them, tells the king, the king sends a messenger out to the house of Rahab to demand for her to give up these two men who've come in, these two strangers come into the land. Let's notice how this works. Verse 3, the king of Jericho said to Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they are come to search out all the country. Well, that was true. They were two spies. Now, what is Rahab going to do here? If Rahab turns the men over and loyal to the king and to her country, those two men are going to be slain. If she does not and she tries to hide the two men and is found out, they still going to be slain, and she's going to be slain. So for her to hide the men is going to go against the directions of the king of that city against her own people. But that's exactly what she's going to do. Now over here in the book of Acts 5, you're going to find where the apostles one time were put in prison. The angel of God came open up the prison doors. They were let out of prison. And they went right back doing the very things they were put in prison for preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they came and they beat them once again and said, did we not strictly charge you that you should not be doing this and did you fill this entire city with your doctrine? You know what they said? They said, we believe it's more important to obey God than it is men. The Bible teaches very clearly that we're to keep the laws of this land. But if the law of the land and the law of God clash, then by God's grace, we're to keep the law of God and not the law of the land. Now, Rahab is going to put her life in danger. She's going to hide these men. And the woman took the two men and hid them and said, Thus, she said, Here's her story. There came men unto me, but I wish not whence they were. Well, that wasn't the truth. She didn't tell the truth here. And it came to pass about the time of the shutting of the gate when it was dark that the men went out. Whether the men went out, what not, pursue after them quickly, for you shall overtake them. That wasn't true. But she had brought them up to the roof of the house and hidden them with the stalks of flax which she had laid in order upon the roof. Somebody says, well, aren't you supposed to always tell the truth? My answer to that is no. That might seem like a strange answer. I'll illustrate it for you. Somebody breaks into my house. My wife and my children are in the back bedroom somewhere. They've heard somebody trying to get in. I've gone to investigate and they're hid back there. And they say to you, uh, is your wife and children at home? Yeah, I'm going to say, yeah, they're back there in the back bedroom. If you go in there and open up the closet door, you'll find them hiding under the clothes. No, I'm going to say they're not back from Walmart yet. They've gone out to town. I don't know when they'll be back. Probably late this afternoon. You think I'm going to tell the truth and tell where they're at? You see, when you're at war, there's an old saying, all is fair in war and love. I don't know about that. But I know this, 
when you're engaged in war, if somebody breaks in my house, I'm engaged in war. I'm not obligated to tell my enemy anything that's true. Now, I'm not going to criticize Rahab here, as some writers have done. I'm not going to do that. She done exactly what she should have done. She took them up to the top of her roof. And you go back to Hebrews chapter 11, it says, By faith, Rahab hid the messengers with peace. She's at peace about this. She's at peace about it. She has peace from doing what she's doing here. She hides him on top of the roof, it says, under some, under some flax, stalks of flax. Now, flax came from a plant that uh, when it reached maturity, it was taken up and it was placed in water where you could separate the stem from the flax or the fiber, which was the flax. It's then laid out where it can dry. Later on, then after it's dried, it's taken and it's used to weave and make linen and different things. The very fact she had enough on top of that roof to hide two men uh, tells me that this woman was no longer engaged in her prior profession. This woman right now is engaged in something else. She has a profitable business going on right here, and it's an honorable one. You go to Proverbs chapter 31, you read about the ideal woman, don't you? Who can find a virtuous woman her price is far above rubies? You go read, read the description over here, and you'll find this said about her. It says, she seeketh for wool and flax and worketh willing with her hands. Says she make, maketh linen, etc., etc. That's what Rahab is doing at this particular time. I believe she had a house large enough where she could lodge these strangers, but I believe she'd long ago abandoned that profession that gave her the label of being a harlot. Paul would testify to that in Hebrews 11, James would testify to that in James chapter 2. And Matthew will testify to that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. So she takes them up there and she hides them under the flax. She's, of course, give a report that they had already left. She tells the people how they can catch them. And look at verse 7. And men pursued after them the way to Jordan unto the fords. And as soon as they which pursued after them were gone out, they shut the gate. And before they were laid down, she came up unto them upon the roof. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord had given you the land, and that your terror has fallen upon us, and all the heavens of the land faint because of you. Now, I want to ask you the question. How, how does she know that? Obviously, they didn't have the means of communication we have in this present day. So how did she know that? Not only did she know it, but she also believed it. This is the faith that's under consideration that Rahab had that she exercised that Paul's talking about and James is talking about. She says, we know. Not only her, but all the other inhabitants of the city of Jericho, they'd got the report. Notice again, she said, I know, rather I know, that the Lord has given you the land. Well, the land of Canaan was a land that God had promised to give them repeatedly. He gave that promise to Abraham, gave it to Isaac, he gave it unto Jacob. How does she know this? God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform, the hymn writer said. In God's own manner, in God's own way, the news of this trickled down to Jericho over time. How did the eunuch 
know all about how to go to Jerusalem and worship when he traveled a long distance to go to Jerusalem when he was the, you know, from Ethiopia. How did the Queen of Sheba, how did she hear about the fame of Solomon? How did she hear about Solomon's wisdom or Solomon's acts? How did she hear about all of that? And it intrigued her to the point that she made that long, long journey, a couple hundred miles at least, to get where Solomon was at. How did she get this information? How did she hear about all of this? Well, I don't know the specifics of how she heard, but I know she heard. I don't know the specifics about the eunuch, but I know that he understood something about Jerusalem, about worship, and also he had in his possession a copy of the Old Testament book of Isaiah. How had Rahab the harlot heard? Listen, in the city of Jericho, there was no Sabbath being kept. In the city of Jericho, there were no scriptures to be read. In the city of Jericho, there was no prophet to proclaim. No prophet, no scripture, no Sabbath, etc., etc. She didn't learn it any from anything like that, you see. You know why I believe that salvation is by the grace of God? I'm going to give you three reasons why I believe that salvation is by the grace of God. When I say it's by the grace of God, I mean totally by the grace of God, wholly by the grace of God. It's of the Lord from first to last and beginning to end. Nothing in between. No assistance, no help, no cooperation whatsoever from the sinner. It's all of the Lord. I'm going to give you three reasons why I believe that. First of all, the Bible just says it. <laughs> the Bible just says it. And if I believe the Bible, then I ought to believe that, right? Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. How much plainer do you want it? Titus 3, 5, Not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy he has saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Not by works of righteousness. How much plainer do you want it? 2 Timothy 1, 9, Who has saved us, E.D., saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. How much plainer do you want it? Romans 9, 11, for the children, talking about Jacob and Esau, for the children having not yet been born, having done neither good nor evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works. How much plainer do you need it? I just give you four verses where it says that every one of those is not of works. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. How much plainer do you need it? The second reason I believe that salvation is by the grace of God is by studying Examples such as Rahab and the thief on the cross. There's a thief on the cross with the Lord Jesus Christ. I was having a, I was blessed to have a very good conversation, you know, with my friend Rico this week. <laughs> uh, we got together, had about an hour and a half conversation, and uh, I made mention of this in our discussion. He said, "Yeah, he was a thief on the left, wasn't he?" I said, no, he wasn't. <laughs> I said, man, I don't know if he was on the left or the right. The Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't say he wasn't on the left. He said, people all the time telling me it was a thief on the left. He said, I'm going to go back and tell them the Bible doesn't say that. I said, well, that's good. You do that. <laughs> thief on the left. First time I ever heard that in my life. It's amazing. <laughs> and when I, when I gave him the um, verse there in Romans 9, and we've talked about election before. He has real concern about his brother out in the state of Oregon. 
and his brother hasn't been a real church goer one thing or another. And I said, well, just tell me something about your brother. Tell me something about his life. Tell me something about his heart. He said, well, he'd give you the shirt off his back. He would help somebody in need. If he saw somebody that needed something, he had it. He would help them out with it. Even if he had to give it up for himself, that's the kind of person he is. I said, well, Romans 8, 14 says, for men is led by the Spirit of God. They are the sons of God. And that's not the action of a carnal, unregenerated man. I said, you've given me some things here that gives me the evidence that your brother's been born in the Spirit of God. And he, first of all, he said, does, does, he, what, does he not have a chance? I said, you, I asked him this, I said, do you want salvation to be on the basis of chance or you want salvation to be in the hand of the Lord? Well, the hand of the Lord, of course. <laughs> I said, that's right. So let's get the word chance out of here. I said, nowhere in the Bible does it say anything about salvation based upon chance. If it's based upon chance, we'd all come up short, wouldn't we? We'd all come up short. That's the, that's the second reason. I believe that salvation by the grace of God because you've got these uh, outstanding examples of the thief. When you read the gospel accounts there, you're going to find where both thieves rail on the Lord Jesus Christ. But then Luke tells us after that, after this thief, whichever one it was, left or right, railed on the Lord Jesus Christ, he then rebuked the other thief and says, this man has done nothing amiss. We get what we deserve. And he turned to the Lord and said, Lord, when thou comest thy kingdom, remember me. What happened? At the 11th hour, the Lord spoke life to that thief, whichever one it was. And the third reason I believe salvation is by the grace of God is because I knew and I know it took the grace of God to save me. Do you feel otherwise? Do you feel like you kind of helped the Lord along in this matter? Do you feel like you've done a little something to assist the Lord? You know, to make it complete, that he died for you, but that didn't matter unless you've done something to make it complete. No, when you look at your experience and you're honest about it, you're going to have to come to the conclusion salvation has to be of the Lord or I don't have salvation at all. Now, I rest my case on those three reasons. Now, Rahab the harlot, harlot hides those thieves. Excuse me, those spies. Got the thief in here. Anyway, hides those spies. And then here's what she says. Listen to her testimony of faith. I know that the Lord had given you the land and that your terror has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. Remember what I told you earlier when the Lord said he was going to go before Israel and put the fear of God in them? That's exactly what he's done. The Lord has gone before them. They've heard the report. For we have heard, and notice how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you. When you came out of Egypt, and what you did unto the two kings of the Amorites, and on the other side, Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. You can read about both of these accounts. They heard the report, and notice the accuracy of the report. They don't heard the report, they heard the accuracy of the report. God did dry up the, the Red Sea, where they walked across on dry shine. He caused a strong east wind to come and blow upon the Red Sea. It turned into two great walls of water, and they marched to the other side, dry shine. It wasn't a dab of mud on the shoes. He got over to the other side. And then there was two kings that opposed him in their journeys, and God gave them the power to early destroy both of them. And she says, we heard all about that. A true report. That's what Queen of Sheba said when she got in the psalm. It was a true report that I heard of thee. 
as soon as we heard these things, our hearts didn't melt. I remember about reading about melting hearts earlier, didn't you? Numbers chapter 13, when those ten spies came back and told all they told, said, we be not able. You know what the Bible says? It caused the hearts of people to melt. Well, here's people's hearts that's melting because God went before them and put the fear of God in them. Therefore, there remains no more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he's God in heaven above and in earth beneath. What a statement of faith. She acknowledges there's just one Lord and one God. She acknowledges he is the personal God of the nation of Israel, and he's the Lord of heaven and earth. Yet that expression, heaven and earth, is used repeatedly in the Bible, both in the Old and New Testament. The Bible starts off that way, doesn't it? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God quit what? The heaven and the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ prayed in Matthew chapter 11. He prayed to the Father. He says, Father, it says, uh, uh, Lord of heaven and of earth, I thank thee who has hid these things from the wise and prudent, among the babes. The Lord said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away. Give me example after example. Psalms 121, verse 1, David said, um, he says, uh, we uh, have this courage. He says, because of our belief that the Lord created the heaven and the earth. The Lord created the heaven, he created the earth. He's the Lord of heaven, the Lord of earth. Isaiah 66, 1, he says, the earth, heaven's my uh, throne and the earth is my footstool. There's a connection between heaven and earth, isn't it? And the Lord, he's Lord there and he's Lord here. He's God there and he's God here. There's no place in heaven on this earth where he's not God and where he's not Lord. And she says, I know he's, your God is the Lord of heaven and also of earth. A marvelous declaration of truth. And it's by faith, of course, she did this. Then she says, Now therefore I pray you swearing to me by the Lord, since I've showed you kindness, that you'll also show kindness unto my father's house and give me a true token. Throughout the history of Israel, there have been tokens given. What was the token after the flood? It's a rainbow. A rainbow was given as a token after the flood that God would never destroy this earth by a flood again. What was the token God's covenant with Abraham? It was circumcision. What was the token when God came into the land of Egypt and he struck the firstborn of all the Egyptians dead? What was the token? It was the blood. The blood was on the side posts and the lentils. That was the, that was the token. What's the token in the New Testament church? It's the unleavened bread and the wine. That's the token. It points to the Savior. It points to his perfect life, his sinless life. The unleavened bread, his body, the wine to his, uh, to his blood. That's what it points to. Every time you take the Lord's Supper here, you're observing a token he gave to the church concerning his son. When you see that on that table, you see the life of Christ. You see the sufferings of Christ. You see the death of Christ. You see the perfection of Christ, the unleavened bread and the wine. That's the token he's given to his New Testament church. So what's this token going to be? I'm going to summarize this for you. She's going to take a scarlet cord and she's going to hang it out the window and those two spies are going to be able to escape that scarlet cord and they're going to enter into a covenant with each other. She's asking them, when you come and take the land and the city, she says, I ask you to spare my life, and not only my life, but the life of my mother, my father, my brother, and my sister, my entire family. 
and give me a token of this. And those two spies told her, saying, our life for yours. Because she had showed this great act of kindness in hiding them and sparing their lives, protecting them. She says, when we come, you hang this cord outside the window, and that'll be a mark of identification. And they'll see that cord, and they will not, you know, they will not destroy you because the command that Joshua's going to give them when they take the city of Jericho is that everybody in that city is to be slain and destroyed except one house, and that's the house of Rahab. That scarlet cord, scarlet's the color of red. That points us to blood. When Israel came and they took the city of Jericho, the Bible says the walls fell flat, but the house of Rahab was on the wall of the city. And everybody in that house was spared this judgment. They had security in that house. They had safety in that house. You remember when God destroyed this earth by a flood? There were eight people spared, right? And they had, where was their safety? It was in an ark, wasn't it? God provided an ark for their safety. And everybody in this world was destroyed except those eight was in that ark. You know where you're at today? You're in the Lord Jesus Christ. Everybody outside that ark perished. Everybody in that ark was delivered from the flood. Everybody in this city was destroyed except those who was in the house of Rahab, the harlot. You're in the Lord Jesus Christ. And being in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are spared from the wrath to come. God's wrath is coming, but God's people are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 6, it says we've been made uh, accepted in the beloved. Did you know that? The beloved is Christ. God has made you accepted in Christ. You are in Christ. And all that are in Christ shall be spared the wrath of God. When God comes again, this earth shall be destroyed by fire, and God shall pour out his wrath upon the ungodly and the wicked, and those in Christ are sheltered and they are spared because they're in Christ. That cord, when they came, all the, all the soldiers, all the army knew this house was not to be touched. And they gave their word. And sure enough, when they came, it says, And Joshua saved the household of Rahab. Here's a little sister, here's a little woman that God took out of the dunghill and raised her up to where she became an ancestress of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? Here's a woman who in her earlier days was a harlot. She ran a, a harlot's house in the city of Jericho. The city of Jericho was uh, the city of Amorites. And idolatry and, and harlotry was accepted in that day. And she's run that kind of house. This is what she was doing. She was using her body in this manner, in this way. But the grace of God comes. Uh, comes. You know, I, I love this verse in Romans 5, 20. Where the law entered, the fence might abound, but where uh, sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Aren't you glad about abounding grace? Aren't you glad as bad as saints can get and sin abounds, that grace much more abounds? Aren't you glad even though when Adam transgressed God's law and sin came in the world and death by sin and death passed upon all men, that the grace of God abounded over that? Are you with me? 
The abounding grace of Christ. Yes, sin abounds everywhere you turn around and look. I ain't going to say much about it. I don't want to leave you here down. I want to leave you here up. I'm just telling you this morning where sin abounding, grace did much more abound. And where the sin of this woman abounded in her earlier days, the grace of God came around my friends and lifted her up out of the dung hill of sin and the dung hill of her depravity and gave her a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and put faith within her heart. And when those spies came and she believed the report, she took those spies in and she uh, protected them and she uh, 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 took care of them and she delivered them safely uh, out that window by that scarlet cord, uh, an act that she put her own life in danger, but she believed in the true God of Israel as well. God just took her out from the very dust of the earth, the very place he took you, and he took me. That's what he did for the thief on the cross. He was a thief. He was not falsely accused. He, he, he confessed it. He confessed it to the other thief. He says, you and I get what we deserve. But this man has done nothing amiss. What a confession of faith that was. Rahab, this woman, she was changed. And God's grace is what changed her. Ephesians 2, 1 says, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespassing and sins, which in times past walked according to the course of this world. In times past. Titus 3, 5, Not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy has saved us, washed in regeneration. Read just above that. He says, For we ourselves were sometimes foolish, deceived, serving divers, lust, and pleasures, hateful, and hating one another. That was us before time. There was a time we walked according to the course of this world, but something took place in our hearts and in our lives that elevated us out of that and put a hope within our hearts and a desire to, to walk away from that and walk in newness of life. That's what Rahab the harlot did. God cleansed her and took care of her. She was one of his children. He knew she was over there and he put faith in her heart. Those spies didn't just accidentally wander in her house. They were divinely and providentially directed by the, by the hand of God to be in the house in the hand of one that would take care of them, protect them, and deliver them. It's amazing she's in Hebrews 11, isn't it? Seemingly. It's amazing she's in James chapter 2, seemingly. It's amazing she's in the genealogy of Christ, isn't it? To us, that just shows you what the power of grace can do. I believe not only in the amazing grace of God, I believe in the miraculous grace of God. If I'm not deceived in my experience, I know how miraculous it was when he dealt with me and put me in a new, new pathway and a new direction.